So this is the final bonus episode of the sixth season. And before I dive in, I want to share some exciting news with you. As you may know, I've been writing a new book called Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. And I'm excited to say that it's coming out with Kogan Page this autumn. To celebrate the launch, The Hive Podcast will be back in September with a very special extended season featuring the interviews I conducted with some of the world's leading psychologists, experts and business leaders. We'll have everyone from Scott Barry Kaufman, Barbara Kellerman and Amy C. Edmondson to Cindy Gallup, David Rowan and Brian Solis. And we'll also have some brilliant and familiar voices back on the show, including some of my favourite guests, Dr. Aaron Balick, Dr. Gillian Isaacs-Russell, and Tomas Chamorro-Premusic. It's going to be an exceptional season and I cannot wait to share it with you. The book itself will be published in the UK and EU on September the 3rd and in the US on September the 28th. And if you'd like to support my work, I would be so, so grateful if you can pre-order your copy from Amazon now and help me to bump it up the charts. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about the book, as well as upcoming projects and events, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com or follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn at natalinahai. And now, on with the show. In today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Manfred Spitzer, a German psychiatrist, psychologist and neuroscientist whose research and talks have been translated the world over. The medical director of the Psychiatric University Hospital in Ulm, Germany, Professor Spitzer is also the founder of the Transfer Centre for Neurosciences and Learning, and he has worked at Heidelberg, Harvard and the University of Oregon. He has been widely published in neuroscience, learning and psychiatry, and has authored numerous texts, including two books, the first, Digital Dementia, What We and Our Children Are Doing to Our Minds, and the second, Pandemic, What the Crisis Does to Us and What We Do With It, which explores the dramatic effects the virus has had on our lives, both as individuals and as societies. In this conversation, we discuss everything from the perils of digitalizing classrooms and the reliance we have on our devices, to exciting new interventions science might offer us as to how we build resilience from the lessons we have learned from this period. This was a fascinating and free-roaming talk, and I really hope you enjoy it. Professor Spitzer, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Well, it's a pleasure to to be with you, at least auditorily. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. So I'd like to start by asking what I invite all my guests to reflect upon. And that is, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now, if we use that frame? Well, a lot of things are going on. But uh, as regards to um, the current pandemic, I think there's one thing that's really striking. And it's not so much... Um, what the virus does to us, but what our measures about the virus does to us. That is, it gives us a feeling of learned helplessness. Mm. Let me briefly explain. You know, when the first lockdown was and when we started with the pandemic, we thought, okay, we can do something. So even though we didn't have a vaccine or let alone medication, we could do something. So we stayed at home and we had this the first lockdown in the first wave. 
and um, infection rates went down. So we thought, okay, that's how to deal with this. In the fall, things were completely different. The virus crept up and got much worse, and we did this and this and this, and the measures were increasingly not nice to live with. And most of all, there was no end in sight. So, well, we, we do it in the fall and we'll be fine at Christmas. And then, well, we have to prolong after Christmas. And, well, maybe it's Easter and then after Easter. And, and this basically told everybody that basically we, 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 we can't do anything. And uh, whatever we do, it, it's getting worse and, uh, and we have no clue. And, um, and and this is, you know, when you have when you experience this once, that's okay. But but if that happens almost every day, and uh, for months, that gives you the feeling of well, I cannot, or we as a as a society, cannot do anything about this. And this is really one of the <laughs> most prevalent and still most relevant theories about how depression comes about in psychiatry. And it dates back 50 years, and it's called learned helplessness, and it even works in animal models of the disorder. So if you teach, uh, you have no clue what's going on, and you have no control over your situation. Uh, that basically makes even lab rats depressed. Mm. So that is, they, they, they won't move as much, they won't be as agile and running around and going about their lives. They will retreat and will show clinical signs of depression. And I think that happened on a global scale, which is not good. Mm. So I think from a psychiatric perspective, it's not the virus, it's what we our responses and our responses that, that, that had an effect on ourselves on a global scale. And I think that's going to be, in the long run, even worse than the virus itself. Mm. And I want to come to your insights about the pandemic because you have a new book that I'm very excited to ask you about. But before we dive into that, I'd like to ask where you as an individual and with all of your expertise and understanding, where you find meaning at the moment given the learned helplessness that seems to be a collective experience for many of us? Yes. Well, I think there are, well, there are signs of hope and signs for things to improve through the pandemic and because of the pandemic that, that makes me hopeful. <laughs> uh, it, in fact, for one thing, it seems paradoxical. We have a disorder that makes us um, hardly breathing but the planet kindly <laughs> can take a deep breath from from its dysfunctions that are implemented by human beings so on the planetary scale earth did quite well through the pandemic because we stopped flying and we stopped using energy so much and and many other things happened that were good on top of that i think people have or in the long run that's my hope will realize hey, yeah, we could not do much about the pandemic and that was a terrible um, time for all of us. But that's one thing we can realize now is that we can do more than we have been thinking, well, one and a half years ago. For example, we, we really can stop flying. Nobody hmm. uh, drops dead because of this, not even the economy. Um, managers can actually call one another and talk over the phone 
or even while given all the new gadgets, we can we can have virtual presence, even though we've learned that's not really uh, a big craze or even a big thing. It, if, if it has to be done, it works, mm -hmm. but it's not that great. But we can change things around. And, uh, and this is one thing we did learn, even though that isn't, hasn't sunken into the, uh, well, I would say collective unconscious <laughs> mm. on a global scale, but maybe it does. And maybe people think, well, hey, we, we have done this before and we can, and, uh, and it must not be done within a week. We have years to, you know, adopt slowly and um, make um, rational and informed choices in order to, well, save the planet. Mm. And for me, the, the chances that we do this successfully have actually increased. And maybe even the, the solidarity and uh, empathy between people has changed for the better simply because we feel that the essence of our lives is uh, social contact. And once we we learn the hard way that social contact can be interfered with, and it has been during our responses to the pandemic, so we see what's really important in life. It's not how much we consume, it's uh, how, how well we we spend time with others, and that this is essential for our well-being. And if these ideas hopefully will sink in in the long run and will make changes for the better, I think that there is uh, there is meaning and hope in all the misery that we have gone through. I really love that perspective, and I think I think you're right. It really has created a moment in which we can reassess what we want for ourselves as individuals and also as a society and also as a species. Yes. And so I want to ask you about your new book that you've published in German, which is called Pandemie, was die Krise mit uns macht und was wir daraus machen. I think I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Which roughly translates as pandemic, what the crisis does to us and what we can do with it. And I love that framing. Can you tell us about the book and some of the conclusions you came to in your research or some of the, the questions that you came to? Well, first of all, let me tell you that this book was written during the first wave of the pandemic. I was, even though people might say, well, I am not an epidemiologist, not a vi nor am I a virologist. No, I'm a psychiatrist. So people might think I am the most remote medical specialist that you can ha <laughs> have when asking about corona and the pandemic, but not so. If you think about it, psychiatry is a, is a group activity because no matter what you suffer from in a mental hospital, uh, you are impaired in your social life, which is why we everything we do is in a way social. We do sports and arts and crafts and talk therapy, but mainly in groups. So from one day to the next day, we, that is me and my, and, and, and my hospital, we had to reinvent psychiatry in order to keep doing it, to be able to keep doing it. And uh, so that was a, a lot of effort that went into every detail of what we've done so far. In addition, I've been part of a group who took responsibility to increase the number of emergency care beds at the university, the entire university hospital. So there were uh, wards moved around and, uh, and uh, personnel was moved around just to, to make sure we can increase capacity on the acute side if COVID 
19 and the pandemic it causes would 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 uh, increase and we saw France and Italy hitting their capacity level and in Germany we were a bit later in the pandemic so we had uh, we had these models in our neighborhood uh, and and we we thought oh my god we must prevent this mm. and we did and it was a lot of effort that went into this and um and so was and and I was part of that too oh. And uh, and so it was kind of from from six in the morning till ten at night. Uh, corona was on my mind and was on my desk and in my hands, and I had nothing but corona to, to deal with. Mm. And so I thought, uh, eventually, oh, I'm I have to to write up an account of what happens and what what are the the mental health aspects of this. Also, briefly, what's the pandemic and what's corona, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that went to into a Small book, but um, it um, basically captured, first of all, what happened back then. So it's a kind of a, um, a time capsule yeah. because it was written during the first wave. And also it, it contains a lot about, uh, you know, the, the mental uh, health aspects that came into focus later. And by now it is clear we should have had psychiatrists and uh, pediatricians in the uh, scientific advisory boards for uh, the government. We only had epidemiologists and uh, virologists. And they, of course, had their perspective. But take school closures. Uh, 1.6 billion kids on the globe could not go to school during some for half a year. In Germany, it was a couple of weeks first, and then another half year, maybe. So that caused a scar in in the development of these 1.6 billion children and adolescents that is going to be there for their entire lifetime. No doubt about that. Mm. And if you add up um, the overweight, the lack of education, the lack of a good meal, 300 million kids didn't have a, a warm meal a day that they got through the school and because they didn't have any school. So if you add that all up and and think about the long-term effects, they are going to be huge. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they are going to play out during the entire century. If you are a kid in elementary school, you're going to live to the next century. And uh, given we have 80 years, well, 79 years to go, and given the life expectancy of uh, children today, so this is going to affect all of us to a much larger extent than is um, well thought about today. And, and, and that's all in my book because that was clear back then as it is clear now. And it becomes a little more thought about now, but now it's too late. Uh, we, have, we have done the damage and the scar is there. So I wonder then how you think we could start to work with the trauma that so many people will be carrying with them. Because obviously, if we're ill-equipped to deal with hardship, if we've experienced trauma, it can be hard to deal with future hardships. And with the climate crisis upon us and things unraveling in many different ways, we need people to develop resilience, to be able to cope with the difficulties to come. So what are your thoughts about how we can help people who have experienced hardship and trauma during this time? Well, trauma is one thing, and I think there is actually a great deal of that that's going to come about and, and have the and have manifestations in the future. But um, it's even a little more subtle. Uh, we know that if you have 
well, let's say half a school year less of education that manifests itself through your entire lifetime in about, in, well, in a couple of percent less of productivity. And if you multiply that by the billions, then, then you end up with a huge figure in, in loss of productivity that you could have had. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that um, 70% of overweight children and adolescents are going to be overweight adults. And a lot of younger people have become obese during the pandemic simply because they didn't go out and didn't move around, etc., as much as they used to do. And this obesity pandemic and the inactivity pandemic that's actually discussed in the literature, even before corona, that is going to have long-term repercussions. Or something that hasn't been discussed at all, at least as I can see, well, in Europe, is the fact that people have used screen media to a much larger extent, in particular young people. In China, a researcher, for example, uh, has studied the effects of the Wuhan lockdown, and he found that in six to eight-year-olds during the lockdown, the eyeballs increased in length three times as much as they normally do during development. No. And, um, and just to, 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 to explain this very, very briefly, the eyeballs of kids grow and ha- they have actually a built-in mechanism to stop growing whenever the, the image is in focus, which is really a handy mechanism because the eyes are too small and they are not really in focus in small kids. So they grow and grow and grow. And all of a sudden, the image is in focus. That gives the eye a signal to stop growing. Mm. Now, if you look at close range, the rays, they cross further back in the eye. So if you look at close range a lot, the eye will grow longer. We know this for 140 years, and it's called school short-sightedness or school, school myopia. So it used to be that kids who read a lot, needed to wear glasses later on. <laughs> this is also how the stereotype of the, of the person with glasses who is sort of an intellectual uh, came about. And, uh, and so there's truth to this. And, uh, and the problem is these days that in Germany, adolescents, they read for 15 minutes a day. So that won't give you trouble with your eyes. But looking at your smartphone, uh, which is by far the most used digital gadget on the globe and the smallest, which is why you look at closest range, even closer than books, because it is so small. So this caused in South Korea and in China what people already called myopia pandemic, so that uh, people think that in a couple of decades, half the people on the globe will be short-sighted. Mm. And short-sightedness is a risk factor of blindness in uh, older age, that is, from 50 onwards. Not just very old age, but from, from, from when you are in your 50s. And so increasing the chances of, well, 1.3 billion Chinese people of getting blind, the Chinese government has actually forbidden the use of smartphones um, early this year. Wow. Because of the data they have found out in their children, six to eight-year-old children, because the, the lockdown made the speed of growth accelerate by three times as much. And they said, no way, we can tolerate this. So we have to do something. And they did. 
That's extraordinary to hear a government legislate against the use of devices because they cause a physical, long-lasting change in the people who are using them. Yes, exactly. And uh, I, I actually have a, a coworker of mine. He, who, she is from China, and I ask her, "Can you can you get me the uh, the official uh, government reporting on this?" And she did. Wow. And the government statement clearly said, "We are worried about eyesight in the first place. Secondly, uh, uh, the formation of addiction and also immobility, inactivity, and thereby obesity. And we all, when we see, we don't want that. But all of this increased." during the lockdown, and we know that, and so we want to protect our next generation from all of this, so we must ban smartphones. And the, the point here is that this is not a small thing for the Chinese to do, because they have uh, basically for, for years used digital information technology in schools. Mm. So they did their homework assignments with a smartphone. They did their homework on the smartphone. They had their textbooks on the smartphone. They did everything with a smartphone, unlike us here. But then they, they decided we must not continue this. We want to have kids read from the blackboard at a large distance because this is how you can learn reading without having to wear glasses later on and without getting blind later on. Oh. So, so they realized this. And what really strikes me is we hear nothing about this in the media in all over Europe, mm. even though we have an increasing uh, myopia problem in our young generation. It's normally 1% to 5%. We are now hitting 30 to 40%. Oof. Well, South Korea is 95% and China 80%. So what we are getting there and nothing is done. And uh, friends of mine who are ophthalmologists they see that and, and they kind of ring alarm bells, but the sounding hasn't been heard yet. And it people just don't want to hear it because it's so nice to have this little pacifier around for kids and adolescents, give them the smartphone and they'll be quiet. But uh, it's not a good idea to do that. That's extraordinary. I mean, I wonder one of the things, you know, with the pandemic, ironically, has been how we have reassessed our relationship with social contact with one another and with technology. So, of course... The amount of people streaming for the first time Netflix uh, shows or subscribing to other channels, digital channels, spiked hugely at the beginning and throughout the pandemic. And now, of course, a lot of people are just desperate to be with their friends, physically present with one another and to get away from their smartphones and to, to be able to gather. And there's there's a, a discussion around the quality of time, the importance of touch, of being in a multi-sensory environment, of being able to travel physically through space to get to a meeting, all of these different things which seem very connected. It speaks to me of the fact that we have evolved in relationship with our living environment and that when we're cut off from it, we end up suffering in all manner of ways from mental health, emotional health to physical health. Do you think there is a greater acknowledgement starting to happen in the scientific community about this connection, about connection with each other and the natural world, and how important it is that we re-establish that going forward? Well, probably not in the scientific community as it has always been on the radar screen of scientists. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not a problem of the scientific community not having noticed um, the detrimental effects of no contacts or the beneficial effects of nature. Mm. In fact, I'm working on a book about the, the, the beneficial effects of nature on health, mental health, uh, education, and even social behavior. And uh, what came out in the last decade on this topic is really 
astonishing. And if people only knew how big the effects are, they would rush out and go into the woods <laughs> because it's, it's such a great thing to improve your mental life and mental health and well-being. So it has been on the radar screen. But I think in terms of the general public and, and the awareness, that hasn't been sunken in. And I think it has uh, during the, the pandemic. So people are now more aware than they used to be uh, on the importance of real context, on real experiences, and you just can't replace reality with virtual reality. Mm. It doesn't work. And in particular, it doesn't work with people. So there's nothing in comparison to the real presence of real people uh, talking to one another. And this has really sunken in. And I think the consequences will hopefully be such that we are we will estimate this more highly and um, and will place more empathy within the time frame we have when we are with other people mm -hmm. because we have realized this is really important and i think one of the things that's very exciting that i know is is cropping up in cities around the world so where i live in barcelona this has been discussed a lot also i know that in oxford circus in london there's discussions about this too greening cities making whole areas pedestrianized and planting more trees, more plants, creating more shade, obviously connecting to unpredictable and rising temperatures. All of these things, it seems now, are becoming more possible because of the pause that you mentioned the pandemic has created for us. So I think it seems to me that there is there is cause for optimism in the lessons that hopefully we've learnt through this period to be able to create something which is more supportive of mental health and social health. Absolutely. And let, let me add, uh, since you mentioned this, I think it is in, in particular the, the nature within cities that can be improved. And it's, and, and there are, it's all well-researched. We know how far your dorm can be away from a little park such that the park has an effect on your health. Wow. And uh, if it's more than 300 meters, it's, it's, It's too far, but if it's, well, 50 meters, it's in in, in easy, uh, reachable range, and it will have an effect. It's actually a dose-dependent effect, etc. And we and we do know that the park-like scenery is better than a complete wild scenery. So if, if, if the lawn is mowed and if there are uh, – here and there is a tree, then we have kind of a space to, to overlook – which is what we love as human beings. <laughs> we love water. So a little waterway, a little pond is nice to have, and it adds to the naturalness and to the experience of nature. And, and of course, then we have to remove all the signs for the kids. Don't climb the trees. Mm. They must climb trees, so they should, <laughs> and they should be allowed to do so. And, uh, and if, if we have only one tree for 1,000 kids, well, we should get more trees such that they won't leave damages to the trees because the ratio of children and trees is in the favor of trees. So we do know all this, and we should plan this more into city planning. In fact, it used to be that, you know, the greenery, it, it was called uh, architect's parsley. So we kind of pop it onto whatever we have built Uh, at the end to make it a little nicer, to make it look a little nicer, like you do on the soup, a little greenery on top. <laughs> um, and it's not that. It can be 
much more brought into cities and and planned into the into every aspect of it. And once you do this, you get a big effect. Uh, and these health health effects of nature in cities, uh, given that more than half of the world's population by now lives in cities, and seventy percent are going to live in cities by two thousand and fifty. I think is really important for, again, on a global scale. So with this new book, I'm very excited to hear more about it. What do you advise people who are thinking about designing communal spaces or designing cities or towns? What are the key things you would advise them to think about to create environments in which people can thrive? Well, it's important that the green spaces have to be in in close range <laughs> So not one huge park in the middle of the city so you can live kilometers away from that park. That's just too far. Um, you may have one huge park and much, many more smaller ones around it or kind of sprinkled through the entire city. And cities are really can be distinguished in that uh, how much what's the percentage of greenery of, of the, the city space um, and in some cities, it's 2%. In some cities, it's 30%. Wow. And um, people are uh, notice this. And so there are more livable cities and more not-so-livable cities. And, um, and I, I think it's really important that this goes into the planning of the layout of cities that we built in you or cities where entire ni- neighborhoods are t- torn down and turned into well, new buildings, etc. Once we do this, we have to we have to make sure we implement the knowledge about nature and how to build nature into cities. It's not a miracle, or, and it's not you know undoable. Often, little things, just plant a tree here and there, do make a great difference. Mm. It's exciting hearing you talk about that because one of the things in my local neighborhood in Barcelona that has been discussed recently is about creating these pockets of green space because obviously. There are many people in the city. It's very populated. And as you mentioned, there are only, you know, when you have one or two large parks, it's only a small number of people that will have direct access. And so there's a lot of discussion about how people can green their local environments here. If, if I may Please. throw this in, in particular in, in neighborhoods with a lower so, of, of lower socioeconomic status, it turns out that the biggest difference you can make with a tree is if you plant it in a in an impoverished uh, neighborhood, because those are the na- are the neighborhoods with the least greenery, and uh, if you if you add a little there, it makes the biggest difference. So maybe getting people to come together and plant trees guerrilla style, like they do in some places. Yes, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so on the flip side, thinking about the way in which the pandemic has shifted how we work. There's a lot of discussion about remote working or various forms of hybrid working. And obviously, we've also realized that having social contact is really important for well-being and for culture and for a sense of belonging and connectedness. So I wonder what you think are the benefits and potential costs of a more fluid hybrid work future that we encounter now as people start to go back to offices, but they want to retain that freedom from working from home? Well, I think there is hope and there's also the danger of getting it wrong. I've learned that some companies actually scrape new office buildings simply because they they learned that they don't need them and they switched completely to home offices. And um, 
And that's in the long run, not a good idea. On the other hand, we all have learned, yeah, many jobs entail a certain amount of work that can be done easily from home. And so why not have this, as you call it, hybrid model? So let's retain what made sense and, and, and let's get rid of uh, all the extremes. So in my view, if we, if we are now a little, a little more experienced with um, uh, planning our work and if bosses are kind of have learned that their people, they, they get their work done and they must not be overseeing from morning to evening, but you can rely on them doing their work. So once this all gets sorted out, my hope is, that we will become rational about it. So you need not go in every day, nine to five, etc. Why not do do one day of work at home or two? If everyone did just one one day a week at home, that would mean twenty percent less of traffic mm. and twenty percent less of traffic related pollution. So that's a lot. And all of a sudden, the streets would be big enough for 20% less traffic, etc. So I think if you look at it this way, we now have learned that there are opportunities that we can all use to, to make our lives better, um, to save on the commute. That can be a few hours a day for some. And if you save on that, well, you save lifetime, creative lifetime. Mm. Uh, and that's a big savings. So I think we can we can do better than we used to, given our experience. We just have to use the knowledge wisely and uh, and rationally, and uh, if and if we will do so, it will be for the better of us. You mentioned earlier about the digitalization of classrooms and how it's affected, among other things, eyesight. How it's impacting people in that way. Now you also wrote a fantastic and very interesting book called Digital Dementia what we and our children are doing to our minds, which came out in 2012. And so I wonder what you think about the ways in which technology now are impacting our kids beyond eyesight, but also maybe in terms of their learning or memory or neuroplasticity, and whether our understanding of this has evolved since the publication of your book. Oh, I think, in fact, it, hasn't, it has gotten much worse. Mm. But in a way, the uh, the scientific base on these ideas has has increased to, to quite an extent. That is, um, digital media, they are great for communication, like you and, you and me right now, and they are great for manipulating data. And um, as a scientist, I couldn't live without a computer and without the internet connection. No doubt about that. But for developing children who need to interact with the real world for proper development, there's almost no bigger poison than screen media. Mm. And the database, to, to add to this, what I just mentioned, has increased to quite an extent. We have now large-scale studies showing that um, digital media use in kindergarten age uh, impairs cognitive development. A large study on 2,500 kids uh, from Canada clearly made this connection oh. and we have a, a, study, a study from the US in uh, four and a half thousand eight to eleven year olds and that is the more media use the less cognitive development you find uh, a German study found this in 13 year olds in terms of the cognitive control they have oh. or the uh, well impulsivity 
that's the flip side of cognitive control you get um, and the attention deficits you get when you don't exercise cognitive control. And again, digital media use doesn't let you learn to exercise cognitive control and it impairs that learning. So we, we have a lot more data on all of this. In particular, now, having been through the lockdown, we saw media use increasing in the average kid from five hours to eight hours Oof. per day. And, um, and we saw increased body weight, decreased learning. In fact, a number of studies by now have shown that kids learned, learned next to nothing uh, when they had a distance, uh, distance lessons, that is lessons by computer. Mm. And so given all that, I think we we must realize that the best way to teach a kid is to have a teacher. And uh, as long as we have uh, school time out, because there is no teacher for the lack of a teacher being present at school, as long as we have that, we must invest in more teachers and not invest in more digital information technology. In fact, if one thing became clear during the pandemic, uh, then it is that Screens and speakers are not the best teaching devices. A teacher is and a class is and that everybody has learned. In fact, to the extent that that school kids were those who, who lamented most that they want to go back to school, please, mm. because they don't learn anything and they realize that's not good for them. So it's the kids themselves and the adolescents who say, we want school and we want real school and not digital school. So I think this, again, is a hopeful sign, in my view, that people in the end realize you, you can use digital media for certain things, but to, to think you can replace a teacher with a screen is nonsense. And the dystopia that I imagine is uh, well imp realized in some states in the U.S. where they uh, even have digitized kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So this is a, t a kindergarten for the poor where you don't need a human being and don't have to pay a human being uh, to be present when there is a kid there. And this is the worst thing that can happen to a kid. So we don't want a two-class society where the rich can afford teachers and the poor spend their time with computers. And this is the dystopia that I always had in my mind when I wrote up against all these developments. And I think we came pretty close. But now, given the experience during the pandemic, most people have realized the importance of teachers. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned that because... Um as I've mentioned before in the show and other in other conversations, both my parents were teachers, they're both retired now. And there is so much value and richness in having good teachers that you can connect with. And as a child, if you were lucky enough to go to a school and you had even just one great teacher, that single individual can change the trajectory of one's life. Like yes. I have had a handful of amazing teachers who've who still I carry with me in my mind and in my heart because of the impact they had on me. Oh yeah. Yeah. So to deprive people of that. Or to not invest in people in that way, I think, is just is just extraordinary. It can have such a huge impact. Yes, and in fact, I mean, the the, the digitization of education. It was implied when we had that, and we still have that. That um, you only need the good programming and uh, the best software, etc., and uh, you can get rid of teachers. <laughs> and, uh, and we've all learned the hard way that this is simply not true. I don't even need a Hattie study to show that the teacher is the most important thing in a school and uh, the most important feature of schools are people interacting. And, uh, and yes, there can be helpful things like books um, and other media, 
and they are helpful, yes. But just just to talk book for one sentence, a book is better than than an internet connection because the internet gives you all sorts of things, uh, nonsense and bits and pieces of knowledge and wisdom and facts and non-facts at the same time, and it doesn't discriminate. Mm. And there's no way of general knowledge how to distinguish the facts from the myths and the non-facts because there's only existing knowledge. The more you know, the better you can uh, detect fake news. And there is no general fake news detection capability that you could learn in order to, to be a general fake news detector. <laughs> It's just not such a thing. Mm. Fake news don't have a special look or feel or whatever. They just are not true. And in order to know what's true or not, you just need to know a lot. Mm. So we need to teach kids a lot. It's often said, well, we need to teach them media competency or media literacy, and thereby we teach them how to detect fake news from real news. Wrong, completely wrong, because there is no general purpose truth detector There's only people with knowledge. And the more knowledge in a certain domain somebody has, well, the better in that domain this person can well, detect fake news. Mm. To give you a simple example, there is um, Morbus Google. Uh, that is, you Google a lot and then you get sick. <laughs> people came up at Microsoft, engineers from Microsoft. What they basically did, they analyzed uh, Google searches as regards to medical issues. And, uh, and they, they, they analyzed thousands uh, of, of medical content that uh, was searched uh, in Google, and they found this. A standard search starts with, well, chest pain or headache or twitches and ends up with heart attack, brain tumor, and uh, ALS, which is a deadly neurological disorder, where you die within one and a half years or so. So people learn this and they get really upset and they, they continue searching. And, and, and the more they search, the more they get stuck into, well, these very grave disorders. So you start with headache and you end with a brain tumor after, on average, 90 minutes. Wow. So the search basically fails. And next day, you often do again a search, which fails again. Then you consult a doctor who tells you, well, don't worry, it's just too much or too little caffeine. This is the major cause of headaches. A brain tumor is a, one, one of 55,000 people with headaches uh, has a brain tumor. So it, that puts things into perspective. But people who don't know medicine don't know this. So they can't just discriminate and can't, and can't use Google for medical advice. And that's called Morbus Google. In fact, it costs a lot. There are studies showing that in Germany we pay 1% to 2% of our medical budget because of people using Google and then go to the doctor. Since Germany spends 1 billion euros per day on medical care, uh, 1% per year, that's 3.6 billion. 2% is more than 7 billion. So Morbus Google is a costly issue. And the remedy is really simple. If you use Google in medicine, it really helps if you are a doctor <laughs> because then you have the knowledge you need to evaluate what Google is putting on your screen. And this is not just the case in medicine. It's the case all over with any knowledge domain. So you just need knowledge in order to use Google wisely and for your benefit. Mm -hmm. And again, there is no general purpose 
um, fact-finding or fact-checking capability. There's only knowledge. And the more you know, the better. And there is nothing like media literacy that fixes this problem. Mm. It's interesting hearing you talk about having that that bank of knowledge, because one of the other things that I'd read was a couple of years ago now was also the importance, as you mentioned, of schools being a primary place for social interaction, the importance of being able to have open discussion with multiple people in a group to discuss points of view, to share knowledge, to come up against differing perspectives, to enable you to understand that your perspective is one of several. And so it breaks open that bubble and it makes people more able to, I guess, be cognitively flexible and not to become so entrenched in narrower and narrower lines of thinking. And so I wonder also if that plays a role if we're thinking about future resilience, not just about knowledge, which is so important, but also about being able to have social interactions which are generative, which bring people together to discuss these things and to be in belonging. Absolutely. As long as it's real social interaction. The problem with with social media is that they produce all the filter bubbles Mm. and the uh, communities of like-minded people and and also all, all the fake news. Take Twitter. It has been shown that as one commentator put it, the truth is putting the shoes on when the falsity is already half around the globe. Uh, that has been shown empirically. And, and the reason for this is that people are curious. And a true statement, because you know it's true, is not that interesting as a statement that you have never heard of it's, and that is likely false. But as you have never heard of it, you think, oh, that's interesting. And this is why you retweet it and thereby... Um, contribute to the the, the, the the fake news crisis that we have. So it's not just Twitter. It's, it's the combination of Twitter and human curiosity uh, that makes it so sticky. And in fact, it won't be, it won't get away until we either completely lose our curiosity, which would be bad, or if we think more clearly and more wisely about social media use. Um, they try now to check the facts, etc. But I mean, this is something that you can hardly do given the the billions of users. Mm-hmm. So, in my view, as long as what you what you said about sharing, social interacting, and um, and uh, putting things into perspective, putting yourself into one one another's shoes and look from them their perspective, that's all great. As long as you do this with the others present. Mm-hmm. And not with a cloud of people. The cloud itself is an artificial thing created by social media according to certain principles that are not conductive for the spread of truth and knowledge. And once you realize that, it's good to have discussions with other people. And uh, and then you can ask questions and you can check, cross-check, etc. And, and then the discussion is helpful. Yes. Wonderful. So... To finish this conversation, given everything that we've explored today, what question do you want people to dwell with at this moment? What I see is in the younger generation, and I must say I feel most sorry for the younger generation. For example, we have medical students, they they came in the last fall and they haven't seen a lecture hall from the inside. Uh, They could meet students and they could meet in person, and so they were really frustrated by the way university was done or going was gone about in doing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if you are a fifth semester, you have your 
your acquaintances and you have your groups, etc. And no matter what happens, you can connect and reconnect, etc. But those who came for the first time to the university and just to, to shut them out of, of student life and university life, that was not a good idea. And, 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 and so the thing is that given we know now how important all of this is, um, we must make sure that in the next crisis we we will deal differently, and we will take well the social needs of young people more seriously than we did this time. This time it was well, let's just stop to live for a while and then keep going. That's okay for adults. It's not okay for children, adolescents, and even for students. Mm-hmm. So w- we need to do this in a different way. And there would have been ways to do this differently. It just hasn't been done. So we have not been creative enough, in particular when it came to our decision makers, uh, to to do better decisions when it comes to the the life of younger people. We need to do better. So given that, I think the most important thing is that the, those who are now most, uh, well, in danger f- through the pandemic and the lockdown and that is the younger people that they as as soon as uh, well as as fast as possible uh, get a clear idea what's my place in life what can i really do to improve my life and society in general and so what's my place and um to find out you need a lot of interaction you need to go out you need to have real life and the, everybody should should be helped to be able to get into a situation where he or she can interact with real people. I mean, I'm talking about sending people around, sending them to another place, let them learn things there, uh, send them to to a place where you need young people to help out, um, send them to the Red Cross, pay them a little mm-hmm. such that they don't have to worry about their existence, but they have to find themselves and make everything possible and make everything doable that uh, helps them to quickly find their place in life since they haven't done time on that problem for about a year so they need to to catch up in and and everything that helps them to speed up in this process i regard as highly beneficial so so we should invent very quickly projects to make that happen Well, folks, that's a wrap for season six. I'll be back, as I mentioned, in September with a special extended season featuring the interviews I conducted for my forthcoming book, Business Unusual. Until then, if you want to find out more, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalienahai.com or follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. For links and resources from today's show, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash the Hive podcast And as always, my thanks to Caro C for producing. My thanks to you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in September.